Esther chapter 1, and Lord willing, we will look at the first 12 verses this evening. Esther chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is the Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over an hundred and seventy, or an, over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces. That in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the province being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden in the king's, of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to, and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did capel for for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the, se the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command by his chamberlains, therefore the king was very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will help us as we begin to journey through this Old Testament book that you've preserved for us, Lord. I pray that as we begin this journey, Lord, that you will help us <clears throat> to abstract from it the strength the understanding in, that you preserved for us to be encouraged by this wonderful book. Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done. We thank you for this evening, this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Friday, I was given the opportunity to preach at Pleasant View Christian Academy. 
whom we support, and they're very thankful for it. While I was there, I focused there in the book of Proverbs, in the third chapter and the fifth verse, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. After I left that chapel that morning, my, my heart began to think and ponder about people throughout scriptures who have been challenged to trust the Lord and not fully know and understand what the outcome was going to be. And as I began to think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who faced the fire and Daniel who faced the lion's den and Noah who was called to build an ark and never had seen rain before or Nehemiah who was a cupbearer and felt this overwhelming burden to go and build a wall and did not have the experience or the materials, but yet they moved in trust. And as I began to think and ponder, my heart came to the thought of Esther. In each of those cases, we have come to praise our God to see how he's delivered his people, but in this time I found myself just amazed about the life of Esther. And that the... And hold on, let's... Uh, here we go. I don't actually know. I'm just going to turn it off for the microphone. And through that one. But each and each of those cases, God would deliver his people. And, and I found myself just amazed as I thought about the life of Esther. And that's what's really brought us here to the what I pray is the beginning of a, of a journey on studying the life of Esther. For many of us, the, the message of Esther from the book as a whole is a message of hope. Yet, in this message of hope, we find that God is not mentioned. Yet, we come to this understanding that while God is not mentioned throughout the entire book, you see that evil reigns, evil is intertwined throughout the entire book. And even more, it's even more than just evil reigning. Inside of the book of Esther, we see that there were, was such evil in these people's hearts that they didn't just hate God, but they had a desire to eliminate God's people. Yet we see throughout this entire book that God is working. Not only is God working, but he's working behind the scenes and throughout this entire book. You can see that God is moving in this book to bring about a situation in which he would be glorified and ultimately his will will be done. For the Jews who were scattered throughout the Persian Empire here, I'm certain that it was an absolutely uncomfortable environment. And I'm certain that not only was it an uncomfortable environment, it was probably an absolutely appalling environment environment to live in 
And yet, as they lived among these people who did not worship the God of Israel, a feeling uh, or an emotion that I'm certain that we can testify even of ourselves today, as we live in a nation that was once founded on godly principles. We live in a nation that it seems more and more that has turned its back on God. And yet, God's people is scattered all across this country. But even as we're scattered across this country, it seems so lonely at times as we are in the workplace. And it seems like our overwhelming surroundings are people who are bragging about their pornography or bragging about their adulterous habits or bragging about their covetous lifestyles. You know, if you want it, you should be allowed to have it. But there, and really, this is there's so much application that we get from this wonderful book here, but notice this book is not focused on how to make others behave to fit your desires, meaning that what you're going to see in the book of Esther is not how God moved to make these people in these 127 provinces listen to Mordecai and his desires for how they would behave. Instead, God centrally focuses about his people behaving the way he desires and how it can change 127 provinces. Another truth that we can take even in our own lives. But in this nation that we live in and even in the nation that these exiles lived in, you can almost see the chaos that was running rampant in these provinces, and you can see the chaos even in our own nation. As we see all the sin that's running rampant, it's easy to find yourself in a situation at times where you start to wonder, is God working? It's easy to find yourself in, in a thought process is there a purpose to all of this that we see? I mean, really, I mean, how long will this wickedness go on? What is God doing here in this situation? But yet, we see in this book of Esther, we are reminded that though we do not understand what's going on, it is a truth that even when we do not even hear his name, God is at work on behalf of his believers. So it also encourages us to keep our commitment to God and to not waver even when you're surrounded by people who oppose your God. I really love how verses 1 and 2 start, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace. I mean, the first thing that is brought before us, we begin to see this, this royal power. I mean, this king Ahasuerus ruled over 127 provinces. It's almost like Mordecai, who they believe to be the author of this, 
It's almost not enough to say, listen, he ruled over 127 provinces, but he even goes further with, I mean, think about this, all the way from India to Ethiopia, did this king reign? He reminds us here, though, he reminds us here that though this king ruled and reigned, he reminds us not to let our minds get caught up in an earthly perspective about what seems large and powerful. Esther reminds us about the God we serve, that our God is able to deliver from any situation. 127 provinces over all these people, this is no problem for our God. This is a story that we're constantly being reminded of throughout the Old Testament and New Testament alike. It doesn't matter whether God's people are in bondage or captivity to a powerful place like Pharaoh in Egypt. It doesn't matter where, whether God's people are under attack like Israel was in their home city. God is able to deliver them. And it doesn't matter whether God's people are in bondage in a foreign land. God is able still to deliver his people. Even more, it reminds us that, of that the next time that we look at a situation in a sigh of disbelief, of the situation that you're facing to remind us that God is also able to deliver us. But I, I want you to keep this as a note for yourself as we work through the book of Esther, that deliverance did not mean that God would remove Israel from Persia, though he eventually would. Deliverance for them started when a few people would not go against God command, God's commandments and would wholeheartedly seek him, which we'll see in chapter 4 and verse number 4. But even more, I'm afraid that there is at times in America a fatalistic worldview. It's easy. When you first start off in the book of Esther and you see this massive empire of wickedness in front of you, it's easy to develop a fatalistic worldview, like how is this ever going to change? And I think that at times as we look upon America and we begin to develop a fatalistic worldview, like how in the world is this ever going to change? Oftentimes people say, well, there's nothing in the book of Revelations that reads about America's existence and all this and so on. Listen, and I agree. But I also understand that there's nothing in the Bible that speaks about the great awakening that swept across this nation in the 1730s. There's nothing in his Bible that speaks about the second great awakening that happened in the 1820s. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks about the Welsh revival. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks about the revival that swept through this nation in Chicago in 1885. There's nothing in the Bible that speaks about the Azusa Street Revival that happened in 1915, and yet this nation experienced it. And so I stand today to say, when we live in this wicked nation, the book of Esther reminds us that it is, a, it is possible, even in a wicked nation, if God's people, just a few people, 
will do what God has called his people to do, that we can experience revival again. Those revivals came at a time when people stood and where people preached and where people prayed. It was not the entire society, but it was the faithful few. And by the way, these people did not know what the outcome was going to be, and yet they prayed anyways, and revival came. Now, as we work through this book of Esther, I want you to, I want you to really be encouraged that our God is still able to overcome the most adverse circumstances in the world. I believe that's the message of Esther. This is a message of hope, no matter the size of the problem. Again, look at the introduction to our text. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces. I mean, when we read this text, the first thought that comes to mind is the royal power, as we said before. King Ahasuerus, which is oftentimes referred to in history as Xerxes, he reigned over these 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And according to the text, that in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Chusam, the palace, First thing you need to do to fully grasp the narrative that is playing out for you here is insert yourself into this situ situation. Put yourself in the mental state as if you are one of the children of God amongst these 127 provinces. I mean, I don't know about you. I've been in this neighborhood my entire life. And though I've lived in this neighborhood my entire life, I still don't know everybody here. They have those events up at the park. I go up to the park and see these people, and I am dumbfounded that they even live in the neighborhood. Maybe some of them don't. They're just there for food. But regardless, I am dumbfounded because I say, how do all of these people live here, and yet I don't know them? And that's just in this tiny little neighborhood. These believers were or these God's people were scattered amongst these 127 provinces, I couldn't imagine the feeling of insignificance that they had. I'm certain at times it, it felt lonely. I'm certain at times the emotions of hopeless. I, I mean, imagine one of the king's officials hating you so bad, not just you, hating your race so bad that he is building gallows, not only to hang your, you personally, but to hang your entire family. The gut-wrenching feeling when the news came that he had begun to build the gallows for you. And you sit back and wonder how in the world are you going to change what's happening at the top of this society in which you live. Another number in the provinces. How are we going to change the top? I think Mordecai I did good in writing this book and starting off showing that ultimately God will use this man. At first you see the portrait painted of Ahasuerus, this rich and wealthy and powerful man, but yet in the end uh, as this plays out we will see that God will use this same rich, same powerful, prestige, 
prideful man who was full of pomp, God will ultimately in the end use him for his glory. Reminding us of Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Secondly, we see not only this is the royal uh, party, but we, I mean, secondly, we see this royal party, but we see who he was. Now we see this royal party. Look at verses three and four. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and, and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him when he showed, listen to what he says, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. You see this? Ahasuerus was so swelled up in his own pride that he threw a party that lasted almost a half of a year. And a party that lasted almost a half of a year, and the entire time he exalted himself. The entire time he, he praised himself. But you know what King Ahasuerus was going to find out in, in just a few verses that just because you have money, just because you have power, just because you people bow to you, doesn't mean that everybody's going to play along with you. Because in his own pride here, certainly he's going to face his own heartbreak, his own heartbreak. I believe that's a lesson for us all. Ahasuerus was lost in his own pride. He was lost in his own ego. 180 days he exalts himself. 180 days he exalts his wealth. 180 days he throws this throws these parties. But I want you to understand a few things about Ahasuerus from an exile perspective. In 180 days he partied and he never lifted up the name of God. And you know what? the exiles never expected him to. We have to understand that also, that just because Ahasuerus had all of this wealth, and just because he had a party for 180 days to show off his wealth, and even though he didn't praise God for his wealth, it also be under, uh, bring to an understanding that just because he didn't does not mean that God was not the one who gave him this wealth. It was absolutely God who did give him this. Well, God, he says in Matthew, he says that God causes the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust, and he causes the rain to rain upon both the just and the unjust. But hear me now, this is a faithful reminder for us all. You may have beauty, but don't forget who gave it to you. You may have money, but don't forget who gave you the money. You may have a beautiful voice, but don't forget who gave you this beautiful voice. Because just like this king here, he let his prestige go to his head. And coming to the end of this party, he found out that he did not have all the power that he thought he had. So it is called to remind us, don't forget who gave you what you have. Also, you see this 
royal pleasure in verses 5 and 6. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Susa and the palace, both unto the great and small seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. That is a lot. But really it's painting a picture for us that they were living it up. I mean, it really seemed that both small and great was experiencing what you would say the party of parties. Seven days in the garden with white and green and blue hangings and all of these gold cups. And it even goes on to specify here in our text that none of the gold cups look the same. I mean, extreme wealth. Look at this royal pleasure. But I want you to understand that even though this party was going on in this nation, you do not read of the exiles participating in this party. This is important for us to understand. Just a few weeks ago, I don't know what it was, but uh, apparently our news stations today cover more than weather. And so just a few weeks ago, the news, as they were giving us the weather, began to talk about one of the award ceremonies, and then they uh, that happened in Hollywood, and after the award ceremony, they were showing this after party. And then really the imagery that was put before us is that these people were really living it up. Uh, the imagery was that these people were really having a blast, and that since you weren't there, you were really missing out. But in reality... Let me explain to you that what society is trying to paint for you is that the beauty and wealth of high society, they want to paint for you this thought process that you want to enjoy the beauties and the wealth and the monetary part of the kingdom that exists today. And the reason they keep calling you to it, it is a sense and a desire to distract you from the reality of the beauty and the kingdom that we one day will go to. Understand that no matter what you see, whether it's here at these, um, whether it's him ruling over 127 provinces and having the party of parties with the most, most elegance and beauty, or whether it's the king, Pharaoh, and all of their parties and all of their riches and wealth and all of this, none of this compares to the place in which we are going to spend eternity but yet we see that society today seeks to draw our attention to what they have today as in a thought process to develop in our hearts that the believer is truly missing out. But notice lastly here, there was also royal problems. On the seventh day, well, back up here, and verse number eight, and the drinking was according to the law, and none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house 
that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded. Now, one guy said when he was teaching in Bible college, the best way to handle names like this is when you get to this point, you stop and talk for a minute. And then when you go back to reading on the other side of the name, so you kind of skip over. So if you want to read the names, go for it. But I'm going to take a note from him. And this says, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. It was in this drunken stupor that Ahasuerus would make a drunken command. I, we could exhaust ourselves this evening reading the scriptures that warn us about the dangers of alcohol. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse number 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There are many people who have given themselves to alcohol and woke up the next morning disturbed by the foolishness that they were involved in the night before. Take time to watch the news and look at the tragedy of accidents as the result of alcohol. Uh, take time to watch crime TV and realize people who in drunken rages have made bad decisions and it has costed them the rest of their lives. Here a hazardous in his own arrogance, in his own foolishness, calls for Vashti, his, his wife, to come before all these people and to parade her beauty. What is this all about? This is the continuation of Ahasuerus's ego. All of this, from verse number 1 to verse number 12, Ahasuerus is set out to show everybody who he is, how rich he is, to, to, to make people envious of what he has. And when he has come to the exhaustion of showing off all that he has and all that he's possessed, now he has said, you know what? Let me show you how beautiful my wife is. And he calls for her in this drunken stupor to come and parade in front of everyone else. And when she said no, we see at the end of verse number 12, therefore was the king very... And Therefore, let me turn off this here. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. We need to take a lesson here already. When you're prideful, when, you're, when your ego, when you get so caught up in your ego, when you're so caught up in your world, when you're all focused about who you are, 
When you're so self-centered, you know what? Eventually, you're going to find yourself so self-centered that you begin to make unreasonable requests to others. And when they tell you no, eventually what's going to happen is that your anger will burn out of control because there is no reason in your mind why anyone would ever tell you no. And when the Lord, and, and why anyone would ever tell you no. And, and Lord willing, when we return next week, we will see that in his drunken stupor, in his prideful heart, when she would not give him what, she, what he wanted, he called for his wise men and said, hey, tell me how we can get even with her. Hey, tell me how we can come out ahead in this situation. I mean, who does she think she is to tell me no? These first 12 verses really begin to set the scene of the environment and the society in which Esther would come on the scene in which God would begin to work. And really, though it's so many years ago, the layout of their society is not much different than our society today. The people at the top are bragging about how much money they have. I mean, our TV shows are centered around uh, the the cribs of all of these rich people's houses. And I mean, they're getting millions and millions and millions of people flocking, just, just dying to have what they have. And in the end of all of this and all of showing off their wealth and showing off their beauty and showing off their brides and all of these different things, all of it is is a big ego-centered, prideful um, show put forth. But in this put forth here, we see for King Ahasuerus, who set out to show forth all of these things, his, his wealth, his riches, the, his estate, even his wife's beauty. And in this foolishness and in the heart of this situation, when he's finally told no, he wants to get even with the one person who told him no, which happens to be his wife. And when you read this, you're thinking, this guy is a madman, and he was. But yet, in this situation, God is working. Does it seem like it? I mean, what does this mean? What, what, where is God working? If you was to stop here in the story, we would say, boy, that guy needs to get saved. But when we look at this and how it's all played out, we would never say, I mean, we, we, we trust that God is working, but from a carnal perspective, we would never say that God is working in a situation like this. What do you mean? I mean, this guy is getting ready to do harm to his wife. He's getting his friends together to figure out how he can banish her because she just told him no. Even more, all she wants to do is brag about who he is. I mean, look at this repulsive behavior. But this repulsive behavior is what would lead to him being angry about his wife telling him no, which would be what brings Esther on the scene. In the midst of all of this, God is, is, is working to bring about, obviously, the ultimate in the salvation of his people. But yet we understand here that 
This book is a message of hope. It's a message of deliverance that God will and God can, regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the situation, God can deliver and will deliver his people. Let's, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we give thanks to you for this evening. Lord, I, I pray that you'll help us this evening as we have set out to really set the scene of what's unfolding here in the book of Esther, Lord. I pray that you'll give us wisdom, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you bolster our confidence and that you'll strengthen us, Lord, that regardless of what the outlook is in life, regardless of the situation that unfolds in our society today, Lord, that you that you strengthen us to, to, to have confidence and trust that you're working, even in the midst of a wicked time, even in the midst of a wicked society, when we don't understand, Lord, that we'll have confidence and trust that you're working. And Lord, that we must, in these times, continue to stay confident and do our part and stand upon your word. We give thanks to you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 